Welcome to your inheritance, your rights, your obligations, your responsibilities, with your host, Peter Buknevich. In each episode, you'll learn insights from experts. If you're being sued over an estate or if you feel you're not getting your share, Peter's firm can help you. You can find this show at www.betrustlaw.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Your Inheritance, Peter Buknevich. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another edition of Your Inheritance. Really appreciate your being here. Today, we're going to discuss a very important topic. It's mediation. Mediation, a means for resolving trusted estate litigation and civil matters. And anyone watching this video who has a legal problem with any person, any entity, including a family member in a trust in, a trust in estate dispute, ought to know about mediation and what mediation can do to help circumvent a lot of attorney's fees and a lot of anxiety in a protracted litigation. Podcast people need me to tell you this and I need to say it myself, nothing in this podcast is intended to provide or will provide legal advice. Viewers should contact their own attorneys for actual legal advice. Our guest today is Lori Sanford, friend of mine, and a, an esteemed member of the legal community. Lori Stanford uh, provides alternative dispute resolution services based out of Palm Desert, California. She is an active member of the legal community in the Coachella Valley and throughout Southern California. Lori has over 32 years experience as an attorney and a master's degree in business administration, which helps her in business disputes. Ms. Sanford provides both arbitration and mediation services and she is on the american arbitration association commercial and consumer panels and mediation panel and also handles consumer related employment cases ms sanford serves on the mediation panels for the riverside county superior court resolute systems llc california association of realtors and the riverside county bar association which does provide court mediators uh, for, uh, for service to the courts. Uh, Ms. Sanford is currently the president of the Desert Bar Association and the mediation chair. I had the opportunity some years ago to be the president of Desert Bar Association, so we appreciate the amount of work that is involved in that endeavor. Uh, Lori also volunteers as the administrator of the courts, our local courts, first Friday settlement conference program in the Palm Springs Courthouse and has been active in that program since 2009. Ms. Sanford was the DBA, that's Desert Bar Association, fee arbitration chair for three years. A uh, little bit more, uh, Lori is a former trial lawyer uh, working out of Los Angeles and New York and a settlement facilitator, both in court and privately. She has handled just about every type of civil case from a mediator's perspective, including personal injury, business litigation, construction, breach of contract, breach, breach of contract cases, homeowners association disputes. We have a bit of that out here. Employment law, legal and medical malpractice and real estate matters. She's been a top lawyer in Palm Springs Life Magazine for the past six years and she brings with her a wealth of experience to this topic and we're happy to have her here today to discuss very important 
concept of mediation. And Lori, how would you explain to our viewers what is mediation? Well, first of all, Peter, I want to say thank you for this opportunity to do the podcast with you. And let's jump right into it. So mediation is a process in which a third person, a neutral like myself, assists parties who are in a dispute to reach a mutually acceptable outcome to their dispute. It's usually a confidential negotiation and the neutral, such as myself, is not a decision maker. The power remains with the parties to have a resolution that they are both happy with. Let me just jump in right there. When you say you're not a decision maker, are you saying that you're helping people make their own decisions, but you don't actually produce a ruling in a mediation? You're not going there to get a judgment. You're going there to get an agreement, correct? That's absolutely right. In fact, a lot of times when people speak to me, um, they'll use the words your honor, which I'm always very pleased to hear. But the reality is, is that I'm no different than any other person who's in the room. And I'm not the decision maker, meaning that when you are in a mediation, the parties retain control over the process and they can craft whatever outcome they want in a mediation. And I always, as an arbitrator also, and in an arbitration, I'm in a much different role. An arbitrator, arbitrator actually makes a decision, much like a judge on a bench in which you are given evidence, you rule on objections to evidence, and you also decide what evidence comes in, what evidence stays out, and you make findings of fact and findings of law in which at the very end of the case, especially if it's binding, the arbitrator's decision is final, um, and usually it's very hard to overturn a decision in an arbitration, but to jump back to mediation, the parties retain complete control over the outcome of what their dispute is. Okay, so just to spend a little time on the differences, because those are, uh, those are common, I, I would say, misconceptions that people have, and even experienced people will not always understand when you're using the term what a mediator is going to do or what a mediator is not going to do. And I'll have people say, well, what is the mediator going to tell us or decide? Or, or and I say, the mediator is going to help us. The mediator may impart their wisdom to us as the honored, you know, in, our, in my practice area, we, we have a lot of retired probate judges who are mediators and they could tell us if we ask them to, you know, how, how have you ruled on, you know, the 300 cases that you had of this exact same fact pattern, how does it come out? And can you give us some percentages? You know, it, it, they can help us make a decision, but they're not going to deliver a decision at all. Arbitration though, arbitration, when you sit as an arbitrator, you're basically making a decision. You're basically like a judge, you might not be in a courtroom. You might not wear, be wearing black robes. It could be a court ordered arbitration or, or, or more, more, which typically it's maybe pursuant to an arbitration clause, a binding arbitration clause in the contract, and you go to this proceeding, which hopefully is more expeditious than a court proceeding. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And but you are making a decision as if you were a judge, and the arbitration discovery rules and the rules of how they present evidence and so forth are largely going to be the same as they are in court. They might be more expedited but you will be writing a decision that is binding just like a judge at the end of an arbitration. At the end of a mediation, if the parties haven't reached a consensus as to what they wanna do, 
then they, they really don't have anything. But your job is to, as a mediator, is to help them get there. And with that, I want to ask you this question. In, in which, would you agree? It seems to me that you control your destiny more, or you at least have the opportunity to control the destiny of where your case is going in a mediation more than just about any other proceeding. Yes, and you know, so I've worked with court mediation programs since 2009, and that's getting to be a really long time now. And I think if you talk to the civil and even the probate judges, you'll get a unanimous opinion, which is that early mediation settles cases, meaning that the parties, the earlier they get involved in the process, the more vested they are in the process, the more likely it is that they'll be able to resolve their disputes. And one thing, Peter, that when you were talking came up in my mind was there are a lot of mediators out there. There are a lot of arbitrators out there. And what somebody in the public needs to think about is what's the skill set that this mediator or arbitrator is bringing to the table? Because the mediator is not there to tell you what to do. And an arbitrator is listening. They really shouldn't be actively participating in the proceeding except for to rule on objection, objections and decide what comes in. So what a mediator shouldn't be doing is telling you how you should resolve your case. That should be between you and your attorney who is your advocate. What a mediator can do though is sometimes guide you or strongly suggest to you whether your thought process is grounded in reality or are you so entrenched in your position that you're not seeing the forest through the trees and understand what happens if you don't resolve your case and what the next steps are if you are involved in the court system? So uh, well, we're, we're talking about the mediation process. Up until you get an agreement, the mediation process is completely non-binding, correct? That is true. And, and one thing we haven't mentioned, which is one of the reasons why mediations are such an effective tool to resolve disputes is mediations are confidential. And what that means is anything said during a mediation cannot be admitted as evidence into a trial in court. And the reason that the courts have evidence code sections that protect the confidentiality of mediation is so that parties can freely discuss at the mediation what's going on. You know, maybe there's more than just a legal issue. I can't tell you, you know, Peter, you specialize in estate planning and I do more on the civil side, but a lot of times the disputes have very little to do with the law and what it really has to do with is a personality conflict or um, a competition between family members. I've had restaurants, you know, and family members that own that. And, you know, one person felt that they were, their needs and their, their work that they had done is not being recognized. And that's very true in the estate planning realm too, where one, 
you know, person who is meant to inherit feels that they have a more worthy um, position or they've done more for a parent than another sibling or someone else. So a lot of mediation actually is psychological and being able to communicate why it is that you feel you deserve something and why you're in a different position than the next person. I, that's 100% correct. I, I think one of the, uh, the benefits that I think that a strong mediator, a patient mediator, a learned mediator like yourself, someone with a broad a background, someone who's willing to listen and to engage, you've got that confidentiality. You can, you, you're making an investment of time, you're making an investment of money, but you are, you have, there's, because there's no obligation and because it's confidential, there's virtually no risk, except for the fact that you will have to disclose some facts that you're probably gonna have to disclose throughout the course of discovery anyway, because everybody's gotta put their evidence on the table by the time they go to trial, which might be a year or two down the road, and why not try to take a shot at mediation earlier on in a case when you can resolve it completely according to terms that you can live with, even if they're not exactly what you want. Um, it's an acceptable um, resolution that once you sign that agreement becomes binding and enforceable by the court at that point. But one of the greatest benefits is if I've got somebody who's not me as the advocate, and not me as the as most lawyers were zealous advocates in court and we hopefully we provide wise counsel in private but the benefit of getting a third party who's been through these processes before and have your client ask those questions and even spill their guts it's to some extent to the mediator in a completely confidential setting where they can get feedback and cut through all of the language of litigation you know interrogatories and how we have to do things with 30 days you know 30 days to respond and you're talking through the lawyers and you're having a real conversation about an issue with a human being and then that human being can use shuttle diplomacy to go to the other side to see if you could work something out that is extremely powerful i think and it's and it's uh something that should be used more often, I think, I, I, I feel I have an obligation to make it available to clients to see if they can resolve cases earlier rather than later. And here's where I have a question. Is it, when is the right time to mediate, in your opinion? You know, that is a great question. And, you know, I want to just mention on two things you said, patience and listening. Those, those are, those are key. And so, I would think that it, earlier is always better because as you just mentioned, as advocates, when somebody goes to you and hires you as your their attorney, you have an obligation in order to present a case properly at trial, you have to really do a lot of work, which means you have to get all the information you need to resolve the dispute. But sometimes if you can get something on the earlier side, the parties have the information and you can just get in there and it's more efficient and more cost effective the earlier you can get something resolved. 
In other words, in discovery, you're going to be dealing with the vehicles of how we go about using the code of civil procedure to attain admissible evidence in the proper form through depositions, through written discovery that's verified. And there's a process to that. And that process that I call the language of litigation, once people are not able to resolve their own disputes, they're speaking in the foreign language of litigation, which is a necessary language that we have to employ because those are the rules that lawyers have to live by. But it can be an expensive language because now you're going through your lawyers as interpreters of that language. And, and, and that's how you have to conduct a discussion so that when it finally gets to a judge or an arbitrator, they know that everything they've got before them has been vetted through a discovery process and all they're going to get is the admissible evidence. Well, if you guys can, the family members in a dispute can just come forward and say what they know and cut through all of that. And in a mediation where we're not afraid of letting our hair down a little and saying what we've got to say that we know is going to come out anyway, uh, just cut to the chase and save literally weeks, even months of time and just come to it. Be prepared that you're going to have to show some of your cards. That's what you've got to do if you want to resolve a case. And then through the mediator, using the mediator as a, um, you know, as kind of your, uh, your as your guide and, and as someone you can, you can test how, how to present things and so forth, you can really slim down the amount of time that it's going to take to get to a, a solution that might be acceptable to all parties. And, and, and what do you have to say about what the cost savings would be as, as for that for, for parties? You know, when litigation starts, it involves a lot of attorney work and a lot of attorney time at an hourly rate. And it involves getting evidence and it requires a lot of work. So if you can get a mediation set up, you know, first of all, the process is that both sides have to agree to who the mediator is. It doesn't really do any good if one side, for example, calls me and says, hey, you're great. Can we please use you for mediation? I'm like, yes, I would be absolutely thrilled to handle your case, but you need everyone involved to come to the table because you can't force a mediation on somebody. Everyone has to agree to who the neutral is that you use. And then um, basically, if you can just get the information necessary, like you've mentioned, to have a meaningful mediation, sometimes mediation is effective in eliminating the issues, meaning you might be able to cut through 90% of what the dispute is and have the one remaining issue of fact or the one remaining issue of law that you could allow to go to an arbitration after mediation or to go to a court. And sometimes what attorneys can successfully do is if they realize they can narrow the issues down, they could also ask the court by a motion, a motion for summary judgment or some other similar motion to make a legal decision. Okay. So, uh, We've talked a little bit about the difference between mediation and arbitration. Mediation being a voluntary path towards a consensus resolution of a matter and arbitration being perhaps a more expedited alternative to going through court or jury trial. But focusing on the mediation process, what, what are the, the typical steps to 
You, you decided you're going to mediation with Lori B. Sanford. What, how, how does it unfold and what do you do first? What, what, what are the pre-mediation day considerations and how does that all unfold? Great question, Peter. I always think of mediation as having four steps. Um, the first step is what I call basically the information exchange. And that is, you know, why are we here? What are we trying to accomplish? What are the goals? Is there something that I need to know about that might not be in the mediation brief? So it's basically the exchange of the preliminary information and the opening stage. After that, you get into the exchange of information. And that is when you do, as you call the shuttle diplomacy, and you go back and forth between the rooms and you say, um, okay, they've told me this, or you, you take what the critical kernels of truth are, and you use your mediator skill to say to the other side, okay, I've learned this, please explain to me what your viewpoint on that is. So once you then get to that second step of exchanging the critical information between the sides, then you get into the third step, in my opinion, which is to get the parties to think about their entrenched positions and come up with problem solving or persuasion ways in which the parties can perhaps rethink their positions and can get involved in the process of having a resolution. And then you come to the last step, which is how can we close this? What terms can we get both sides to agree on? I've even had, and it's worked a couple of times, where I can pull up, you know, today with technology and be able to, to do things uh, either in person or Zoom or a hybrid, you can actually go through the terms one at a time and have each side look at it and then just craft the language. And sometimes you have to do that on things that are really um, detailed or really critical. So um, again, bringing the mediation to a close means that you're going to want to have settlement terms that are in writing that both sides sign off on. So to unpack that a little bit for our viewers, the process typically involves you select a mediator. That's a voluntary process whereby both sides through their counsel reviews the qualifications of the mediator, your great qualifications, and you decide that this mediator is going to be the person who's going to help us resolve our dispute. And typically, each side pays 50% of your fees, so it becomes it becomes fairly cost-effective that way. You're not getting hit with one side getting a gigantic hourly rate for the mediator. Then you mentioned um, mediation mediation briefs. Obviously, I know what those are. I've written hundreds of them, but um, uh, what describe how you get informed as a mediator? How do you become informed about the case and the issues between the parties? By what means do you do that? You know, great question, Peter. And let me let me take it a step back. What I have found, I've been doing this for a very long time. I have over 250 mediations, and I have you know north of 75 arbitrations, and so. What I find typically happens in a private setting as versus in a court setting where the court says, you know, Lori Sanford, you are the person we are assigning to this case. In a private setting, when the parties come to me, it usually starts with a phone call and it can be most likely from one of the attorneys, hey, 
I have this case. Can you help us? And then, you know, an attorney like myself has to do a conflict check. We have to make sure we don't know any of the parties as a neutral. You want to make sure you're um, impartial and fair. And after that, as you said, it's a 50-50 split in the cost. So the parties at the very start of the case know exactly how much it's going to cost them to have the neutral decide their case. And it's always much more efficient to pay a mediator fee than to get involved in protracted litigation. And then you get to the mediation briefs. And that is largely a tool that attorneys are very well versed at and a good attorney knows that what a mediator needs. And what a mediator needs is not a 50 or 100 page mediation brief. Actually, what a mediator needs is something that basically lays out who are the parties, what is the dispute that we're asking you to help us with, what are the critical pieces of facts and law that are involved here, and why should you help my client, meaning the persuasion part of it, which is what the attorney is getting paid for. You know, why are we right? Why? Let's take uh, a motor vehicle case or a dog bite case. I know that's a little bit different than estate planning, but why does this particular injury merit a certain dollar amount? And then on the other side, you know, why do you feel that the injury is not worth the value that the other side feels that it's worth? In estate planning, you know, it would, I imagine, be, you know, why is one party entitled to something as versus another party? And that gets into everything the mediation brief should contain, should be based on the pertinent, important facts, as well as the law and what the law dictates the outcome should be. Well, the majority of my practice is trust and estate mitigation, and we're typically dealing with uh, breach of fiduciary duty claims on the parts of uh, allegations against the trustee or allegations of undue influence or lack of capacity and, and these types of things. And of course, the mediation brief would focus on those issues. Um, mediation briefs, I think, in my experience, you see different kinds of mediation groups. I mean, some there's there's always, always going to be some element of advocacy in it because the clients are are entitled to and expect some zealous advocacy even within the mediation setting. But the focus of the mediation brief, I think, to the mediator would be that critical section of the brief would be what settlement discussions have you had or have you had any or what do you think would be to resolve this case. And with that, I ask you the question, do you as a mediator have a strong opinion as to whether mediation briefs should be confidential to the mediator or shared with the other side or some combination of both? Excellent question. And you know what? When you mention the dollars, that is that should be what every mediation brief ends with. And that is, this is you know, Mr. or Mrs. Mediator, or, you know, whoever you are, they, you should know that these are our talks. They've offered this, we've demanded this. So when it comes down to having um, the mediator help a party, I think it's really critical to basically make sure that mediator has a really good understanding of where the parties want to land up. Right. And we talked about confidentiality. When 
when you as a mediator are sitting in the mediator's role and you are either in a live mediation in your offices where you're going from one room to the other, the setting where parties come to an office and there's one party's in one room, another party's in another room, and you're having a mediation and maybe they meet together at some joint session or maybe they don't, or more typically, many mediations I've done in, the, in recent months and certainly since the pandemic have been by the, the virtual means as the just like the conversation we're having now and they and they work very very well i think medi mediation is well suited to zoom and, and and all of that because you can have a face-to-face -face conversation with the mediator and you can be joined in with other counsel if you need to have can we speak with counsel and the mediators just counsel and you could do all of those things that you need to do with the flip of a button and you can have parties who are family members who might be chiming in from across the country can be in their own separate breakout room. So there's a lot of positives to the emerging technology that's become available and available to you use as a tool for media for mediation. Um, but the confidentiality and com please comment on this. It's always my experience and all mediators say this. They don't say anything to the other side unless you get express authority from this side to tell them that. So when we're talking to you as a mediator, and I, my client wants to say what she needs to say or he needs to say to you to get his point across as to the, um, the, um, the strong feelings they have about their case, no part of that goes to the other side unless you have permission from us to convey it. And, and, uh, and if they don't feel comfortable giving that permission, then they don't convey it. If they do feel comfortable taking that and saying it, then they do and that is how the consensus is reached because at some point the people who have lost the ability to talk to each other directly right have it and they, they've tried maybe they've tried or maybe they haven't tried but now you're able to maybe say the same things they would say to each other if they could I, i've jumbled a couple of different concepts there but i want to focus on the confidentiality the confidentiality is absolute unless unless it's um, you're given permission to convey a particular point, correct? That's absolutely correct. So focusing on confidentiality, I will actually use the words when I'm in a mediation and I will say, okay, out of everything we've just discussed, what may I share with the other side? And I do that because you know, a really good mediation is one where people feel really raw. I mean, they're laying it all out on the table and they are sharing a lot of emotions. They are sharing with me why they are basically in a lawsuit. Because again, a lawsuit is the ultimate breakdown of communication. Because if parties could have resolved something themselves, you wouldn't be in a lawsuit. Um, and so, confidentiality is the number one reason why the California courts have several evidence code sections that preserve confidentiality. And as a mediator, you might be hearing something which helps you understand what's going on, but then you have to repackage it. Meaning I'm not gonna say something in the same way that somebody shared with me, because sometimes I view it as like poison 
Meaning if I said that to the other side, I know this mediation would be over. Right. So, and you don't want to destroy the process. So a lot of it is explaining to people, you know, what do we need to do to turn the chapter in this book so that we can finish this book and put it on the shelf and move on in life. And a lot of people really need and want help and need confidentiality in order to turn that page in the book and be able to move forward. So there's an element of diplomacy, I, I guess you would have to say, in, in the conveyance of someone's truth or how, the truth as how they see it. Um, and, and that is uh, uh, very helpful because if you as the mediator are asked to convey a message from my side to the, my client side to my hypothetical client side to the other side. And, and then they ask you a question in their private session and they say, well, tell us, what do you think about that position and the argument that counsel's making for my, uh, my not very nice sister in this case or a brother or whatever. And you might be able to say, well, based upon the points and authorities that counsel has, uh, has set forth, but and and, and and understanding the good point counts the good representation that you're getting from your counsel a judge could see it that way and and there's a possibility that that could happen and they might not ever take that from me you know because oh, that's just my my sister or my brother's lawyer or my you know whatever it's just the other side's lawyer or they might not they might not take that from their own relative but they could take it from someone that they had invested a role and have confidence in that they've selected because they know you're just telling them that you're just telling them the truth of what could happen. So I think mediation in large part is the conveyance of truth in a means that is not hostile is how I try to view it. I, I don't know if you would agree with that as a summation of, 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 of the character of the process in some respect, if it's done right. I would. And, you know, I started my career as a trial attorney in Los Angeles and in New York. I was on trial almost every day. And so to me, the reason why I changed my career from being a litigator and a trial attorney to doing mediation and arbitration is it's what I call a peace loving um, process. And it is important because, you know, you can ask in a mediation, what do you think? You can make sure, you know, sometimes attorneys and clients are so entrenched in their positions that they don't always think a little bit about, well, is that realistic or, or what do I need to resolve my case? And so having a neutral who can listen, who could be the diplomatic shuttle between both sides and can also empower each side to resolve their own dispute is so much better than the alternative. And what's the alternative here, Peter? The alternative is you hand it over to the court system and you're asking either the judge or a jury, which is basically 12 strangers who may or may not understand your dispute or may just not like you because that particular day you wore an expensive watch on your wrist and they just think that you are not 
a genuine person. And so you either put the control over the resolution of a dispute with you, or you turn it over to 12 complete strangers or a judge. So it's an option and it's an option that should be explored earlier rather than later. Um, have you ever had an occasion, and we've had the occasion where a mediation starts and it doesn't wind up successful. We don't, we don't achieve um, a settlement at the mediation. My experience in doing many mediations is that I think in all of those cases, I'm trying to think of case that mediated, sometimes they, they don't settle on the first go around, but they almost always settle somewhere down the road. I'm gonna say it's about 80%. If someone crosses the line, if two sides have the wherewithal to put their differences aside long enough to say, we'll at least go to mediation to see if we can work it out. And even if it comes in early and they're just at loggerheads and they're still they're still in the punching phase of, of did you get, it's not ready to, it's not ripe yet. Or we, we, we didn't even know until we got into it that it wouldn't, wasn't gonna happen. Sometimes that happens. Um, I do think in my experience that ultimately there will be a resolution and then i wanted i wanted you to comment on if you have any comment on percentages or anything like that predictability of resolution once you cross the threshold of of actually trying to resolve a case yeah a lot you, you packed in a lot in that last segment so i'd say in court programs my personal observation has been there's about a 50 percent settlement rate and then as far as private, you know, then you get again into the skill set of the mediator or the arbitrator and how effective are they at getting parties to resolve the disputes? So you want to make sure your mediator has subject matter experience and expertise and what you are going to them for. And as far as failure in a mediation, if a mediation doesn't settle on the day of mediation, a good mediator, mediator should do follow up and schedule a second session. And I've, I do that all the time. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I have a mediation that I've been working on since February. It's not a failure that we haven't settled the case yet. We need something to take place in the case in order for the parties. We need an outside expert inspection of something. And so sometimes, let's say it's an estate matter. You might need, let's say the family's fighting over a piece of art. You may need to get that piece of art appraised. Right. There, there, yep. there might be some factors. And that's when, when I earlier broached the topic of if it's ever too early to mediate, sometimes some rudimentary, well, I won't say rudimentary, I mean, I would say sometimes some basic discovery is helpful to be done and exchange of documents or, or, or things of that nature. You know, you might not have to be, have gone through full-blown depositions of everybody. Hopefully you're trying to save that expense, but, but some, it's a case-by-case -case basis as to when you would actually cross the threshold to do it. Um, sometimes people warm up to the notion once they see through an exchange of written discovery, no, no, the other side, we, we, we propounded some pretty provocative questions and we're getting some answers that are open and honest and they don't have objections to them. And they're telling us their reasons and the reasons are good. And they're producing some evidence that we didn't know counsel on the other side didn't know that maybe there's some uh, significant opportunity, uh, possibility of liability here for these claims that they're making in their petition before the court. And so at that point you say, okay, now we're ripe for mediation. And I think, so th those are going to be on a case by case basis. Um, uh, I I'd like to, to uh, comment um, 
Um, you know, you mentioned that the rate of success in court-ordered mediation is like 50%. What is the difference between court-ordered mediation and private mediation as you would describe it? And then that second part, 50% is, is I mean, you've got a 50% chance of having your case resolved. It's not necessarily a bad number uh, in a court-ordered setting. Um, but uh, is it, in your experience, is it higher in private mediation and what's the difference in tone or tenor between private and, and court-ordered mediation, if there is any? Okay, great question. So, you know, let's start with the launching pad of your last comments. First, each case is unique. And that's why you can't just submit every dispute and have a cookie cutter result for each case. Each case has its unique set of facts and its unique set of laws that are at issue. Uh, I find that private mediations have a higher resolution rate because not only are you paying for the mediator, but you, you, both sides have decided. This is what we want to do with our dispute. We want to get it resolved. So both sides are vested in it. Court ordered mediations are usually, you know, the court sees a lot of times that cases might be simple. They might be two-sided and there's few issues to resolve. And so they say, you know, your case needs to be in a court ordered program. But when you get in a court ordered program, you lose a lot of times your ability to pick who the mediator is. Um, and so you may not get the best match for your case, but you also might have a judicial officer, no fault of their own, who may not have a 100% great understanding of the intricacies of your case. And so in private, I think there's a higher chance of resolution because the attorneys have picked a particular mediator for a reason and the parties are paying for the mediator. And I think the mediator works a little bit harder. Very good. Uh, very good insights. With what you've just said, it provokes the question, how should a mediating party prepare for mediation? And the second part of that question is, what type of attitude should they bring to the mediation process? Great question. So I personally think that the number one characteristic of helping um, both sides resolve a dispute is optimism. And the optimism is we're here. We're in the room, we're at the table, we're ready. And I think being positive and being hopeful that engaging in this alternative dispute resolution manner of resolving a dispute is the best way to prepare for mediation. I, I think that parties should be realistic about their positions. I think attorneys should be open to giving something a chance if there's something that's really no, 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 we won't agree to that. I, I think that it's a prime opportunity to evaluate one's position, rethink the position and also globally think about what are we trying to accomplish here and how do we get this done? And if we don't resolve the case today, what's down the road and how expensive will that be? And then the one thing that attorneys 
have a little bit of an inherent conflict with their own clients about is under the law. And again, as you have in your disclaimer where we're not giving legal advice here, there is something called a 998. And that is where the attorneys basically have an offer of compromise. And if the case goes to trial and one side loses and there's a 998, the other side might be responsible for the attorney fees and costs, which can easily be in the six-figure range. And so sometimes that needs to be understood. Okay. Um, what advice do you have for someone who put their heart into a mediation and they went and they thought they were going to get their case settled, but it just didn't work out on that day? What, how, how do you describe it? as the mediator? Maybe you've been there for six hours or however long it's been. And, uh, you know, I typically like to even get to the point where we're starting to draft an agreement and I'll even screen share the agreement with at least with counsel and see if we can get terms going. But it didn't work out on that day because maybe it's whether that that it wasn't ripe yet or whatever. What do you tell somebody as a mediator if they've spent that much time in it and, and it didn't work out? I absolutely recommend let's let's give it another shot. Let's, you know, let's go. What do you need? You know, what information would help you um, come to a resolution of the case? Or sometimes, you know, if it's an emotional thing, you know, sometimes it has nothing to do with who's right or wrong. It's emotions. And somebody, you know, how can my sister do that to me? You know, sometimes people need a cooling off period. And so um, it's really important that parties have the time to rethink their positions. Um, I, it's not unusual to see some parties completely flip their positions after having time to evaluate or to think a little bit further about what their original starting position is. I, I've seen a hundred percent flip of a position. Now, getting back to the rules of the road for mediation, uh, and we talked about confidentiality. What part, if any, of a mediation is admissible before a trial judge? Great, great question. So, again, California's mediation confidentiality laws are laid out in the evidence code. Uh, there's section 703.5 and 1115 to 1129. And basically what those say is that all communications, negotiations, or settlement offers in the course of a mediation remain confidential, which means that neither the mediator or the mediator's report, if there is one, opinion or recommend, recommendations or any findings or anything statements made in preparation for the mediation or writings prepared in connection with the mediation, none of that is admissible into a court of law at the time of trial. And that's a very important recitation of the law. You want to have a mediator who, who knows the law as you do. Um, and uh, it's important for people to know that you could go through the mediation. Maybe it was if it resolves the case, you'll get a settlement agreement that you could petition the court to approve as a court order, and then your case will be over, however you want to do it. Or it's a, it's just a simple contract between parties to get the case dismissed. If uh, if it didn't resolve, um, you're going to report, we've mediated, case didn't resolve, and that's all the trial judge ever knows. He doesn't know what you said, what they said, doesn't know if the other side went wild on you or not. Doesn't know whatever happened in the course of the mediation. The judge doesn't know because, as you said, the law prohibits it. And uh, 
And that's, and that's for the benefit of the parties so that they can have that free discussion where it's kind of, you know, let your hair down and say what you got to say to the mediator and let's see if we could work this out. Would you say that's a, a fair statement? Kind yes, of? it is. You know, I actually, since 2009, have run with the court a program called the First Friday Voluntary Settlement Conference Program. And basically, you know, if a case doesn't... It, all we tell the court is the case settled or it didn't settle. And that's the only thing the court should be told. Nothing else. Lori, you have been extremely helpful. Um, clearly, you know your stuff. You know the code sections. You uh, have a great deal of experience as a mediator and an arbitrator. Anyone would be well served to have you on their case and help help resolve the case. And you certainly, certainly have a demeanor of listening and a temperament that would be facilitated facilitate i think resolution and i want to thank you very much for being with us on this podcast that's all that we have time for today but hopefully we can have a, a an opportunity to speak again on some other issue in the future on your inheritance thank you for being with us thank you peter for the invitation it was my pleasure you've been tuning in to your inheritance your rights, your obligations, your responsibilities with your host, Peter Buknevich. If you're being sued over an estate or if you feel you're not getting your share, Peter's firm can help you. You can find this show at www.betrustlaw.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive feedback, comments, questions, and for sharing this show with others. 